Hello everybody. If all's gone to plan, this episode will be released on February the 2nd, which is World Wetlands Day, which marks the anniversary of the signing of the Convention on Wetlands of International Importance on February the 2nd, 1971. And I just think that's a great excuse to celebrate our wetland wildlife, particularly some of the overlooked ones, which is why I've chosen to speak about the overlooked gem that is the phantom midge larva. So the adults of the phantom midge, which are members of the Chaeoborus genus, are fairly nondescript and look a bit like mosquitoes, but thankfully lack the needle-like blood-sucking mouthparts. And the males have those standard fluffy feather-like antennae that these groups of midges often have. They are actually quite closely related to mosquitoes, which explains the resemblance. The larvae, however, are quite remarkable organisms. Their whole body, with the exception of their eyes, two pairs of flotation sacs, and part of their mandibles, is completely transparent, to the extent that their last meal can be seen in their digestive tract. This has given rise to the names phantom midge and ghost midge, and the other name, which is often used in the aquarium trade, glassworm. And winter is a great time to find these larvae in almost any ponds with an area of open water, particularly those without any fish. You can even find them under the ice. There are four species that occur in the UK. They don't have any common names, so the following scientific names come with the disclaimer that I may not be pronouncing them correctly. So the four species are Chaborus crystallinus, Flavicens, Palladius, and Obscuripes. Chaborus crystallinus, Flavicens, and Obscuripes are the most common and abundant in Northern Europe, but weirdly, the latter species has only one unconfirmed record on NBN Atlas, although NBN isn't always up to date or comprehensive as it doesn't have all the records. Looking at the other distribution maps, Crystallinus had the most records, with records scattered across the whole UK from the Highlands of Scotland all the way down to southern England. Flavicens had records scattered across England and Wales, but not the southwest or Scotland, and Palidus had a similar pattern but had less records than the others. As you probably expect, the different species have different larval habitat preferences. Flavicens is most often found in lakes, but can also occur in ponds and is adapted to coexist with fish, with the last two larger larval stages spending the daytime burrowed in the sediment when fish are present, but when fish are not present, they live a more typical pelagic existence. Crystallinus occurs in shallow ponds without fish, shallow ephemeral water bodies, and the females can actually detect the chemicals fish produce called cariomones in the water and they will actually avoid laying their eggs in these ponds. As a result, these don't tend to burrow in the mud as much, although they can be found there occasionally, living a mostly pelagic existence, free from the threat of fish. Obscuripes is often the dominant species in large fish-free water bodies, including man-made ones like reservoirs. It also occurs in small and shallow water bodies, as well as the deeper lakes. Pelidus is found in the shaded portion of ponds and pools. They have quite an interesting life cycle, with the eggs laid on the water's surface in a jelly disc. Some sources describe 100 eggs arranged in a spiral, though others have talked about 200-300 eggs being laid, and in Crystallinus an average of 351 were laid in one study. I've seen a photo of a circular disc containing the eggs, which are a pointed oval shape and dark brown in colour, and arranged more in a loosely concentric circle pattern. And in one older source, I found reference to the eggs sinking to the bottom, but I couldn't see anywhere else that mentioned that. The time it takes for the eggs to hatch depends on temperature. It can take eight days to hatch at 10 degrees C, but only two days, and sometimes even less, at 20 degrees C. After hatching, the larvae go through four instars, which are the stages an insect goes through as it grows, molting its skin or exoskeleton between each one. The first and second instars live in the open water, 
but the last two stages are more vulnerable to fish predation, and these are the stages that may migrate downwards to spend the daytime in the sediment safe from the fish. All four species overwinter as larvae, usually the largest fourth stage instars. At this point they are 10mm long, and one study found that on average they weigh 4.7mg and do not grow in winter. It is late March by the time they turn into a pupa, and by this stage they've put on a lot of weight, with males reaching 6.3mg and females go all the way up to 11.2mg on average. Pupation is triggered by a combination of the amount of food, increasing temperatures and day lengths. The pupa itself, unlike that found in many other insects, but like that of mosquitoes, is actually mobile and can swim around in the water. It has an enlarged head and thorax, with the shape of the wings clearly obvious, and has an elongate segmented abdomen where there is a pair of triangular paddles made up of many hairs which helps when it's swimming. At the top of the head are two breathing trumpets, which look like a small pair of rabbit ears in shape, and these act like snorkels, the tips breaking through the water's surface to access the air above while the lava hangs below. The development of the pupa is dependent on temperature. The pupal stage for Crystallinus can take 2 to 4 days at 20 degrees C, 10 to 13 days at 10 degrees C, and 30 days at 5 degrees C. It can also be slowed down by lower oxygen levels. Adult Obscurupes started emerging in April and emergence ended in June. Most papers until recently stated there was just one generation a year overwintering as larvae and although this may be true in some cases, a recent study using a controlled pond containing crystallinus showed there can be two to four generations in one year and the other species have been shown in other papers to have multiple generations in years with warm summers. Crystallinus, in fact, only took 14 to 56 days to complete its life cycle in the warmer months of the year. So let's talk more about these amazing larvae. They are elongate in shape and tend to float around horizontally with their body held straight, with the occasional flick of their body to change position, in what I've seen described as moving sporadically by rapidly curling into a tight circle and then unfurling. And they can use their flotation sacs to rise up and down in the water column too. They have a tau of sorts on the underside of the last segment of the abdomen. This consists of a fan of 26 radiating filaments less than a millimetre long. It can be folded up and back out again when needed. It helps with stability, as those that have lost their tail fin hairs often ended up vertical or even upside down when they tried to move using the curling and unfurling of their body. The head is clearly that of a predator. They're somewhat bulky hinged antennae with long hairs along the side which can reach out various bristle-covered appendages in front of the mouth and a dark-coloured large mandibular fan around the mouth that looks like a massive set of teeth when viewed through a macro lens. And black seemingly compound eyes can be seen through that transparent head. The thorax is fused into one body part in which you can see a pair of kidney-shaped shiny organs which are the buoyancy sacs and there is another pair in the seventh abdominal segment. When you look closely, there's a dark orangey brown line that runs from the mouth all the way to the end of the abdomen. This is in fact the gut, and the colour is actually the midge's last meal being digested. These midge larvae are so transparent that normally you don't notice them in the pond tray straight away, but when you spot one, often after it moves, you suddenly realise that there's a lot more in there. If you sweep a fine mesh net through some open water in ponds in winter and early spring, you can quite often find quite a lot of them with very little effort. In the right conditions, they can occur in massive numbers in some lakes, with thousands or even tens of thousands per square metre. In the African Rift Valley, which is known for its large and deep lakes, there are so many of these midges, clouds of adults look like smoke coming from the lakes, 
Some of these swarms may stretch over 10 to 32 miles and contain millions of these insects. They were first described from Lake Nyasa by the famous explorer David Livingstone and also occur on the Ugandan side of Lake Victoria. Some locals living near these lakes will catch these swarms and they are made into kungu cakes and eaten. The larvae are important predators in many lakes and ponds. The smaller first and second instars eat rotifers and larger algae species such as dinoflagellates. But the larger second two instars feed on larger prey, such as copepods, cladioserans, which are basically water fleas, including bosmina and daphnia species. They also eat chironomid midge larvae, mosquito larvae and other phantom midge larvae. I mentioned earlier how the adult females of at least one phantom midge species avoid ponds with fish in by detecting their carimones, a chemical released by the fish into the water. If a phantom midge larva detects the carimones of fish, it will start migrating down to the bottom sediment in the daytime to avoid being predated. They can also detect the carimones of prey species, and when they do, they become more active hunting for this prey. But they don't have it all their own way, of course. Phantom midges release their own carimones, and some of their prey species can detect this, and it triggers them to grow neck teeth, which are spines behind the head. This means when these Daphnia are attacked by a phantom midge, it finds it hard to catch and handle them as the spines get in the way of those grabbing antennae. Studies have shown this reduces the amount of times a Daphnia are successfully caught, and the midge larvae that have recently fed will actively avoid trying to catch these individuals. They are pelagic predators, and in fact are the only truly planktonic insects. They hang motionless and horizontally in the water column and wait for prey to come within reach of their unique prehensile antennae, which have evolved into grabbing appendages, which superficially resemble the arms of prey and mantis. These work together with the other head appendages and mandibles to catch prey. The larva can sense the movement of prey nearby using the array of sensory hairs over the length of its body. It can also sense the movement of predators. It's not clear if they use their eyes or not, but they hunt at night so they don't appear to need these eyes to hunt. I'll talk a bit more about the eyes later on. On detecting prey in reach, they extend out their antennae and the long hair-like setae on each of them fan out. At the same time, the other head appendages and the pair of mandibular fans around the mouth open wide, which together form a catching basket. The body then twists round to line up with the prey and they grab it. Having got hold of the prey, usually with the antennae, the basket elements retract and close round it, the head pulls inwards and it curves in to pin the prey against the thorax. The prey then ends up in the mandibles to be processed and eaten, and the head returns to its normal position. There are some great videos of this process in a couple of papers online. Perhaps the most remarkable thing is this whole process only takes 300 milliseconds, and most of that time is the folding up of the head towards the body and back to the resting position, but the actual strike itself only takes 30 milliseconds, and it only takes 40 milliseconds from the start of movement to prey contact, which is one of the fastest known attack movements in the animal kingdom. They are faster than prey mantis, which take 42 milliseconds, although they are slower than mantis shrimps attack movements, which take four to eight milliseconds, and much slower than the fastest strikes in the animal kingdom, which are trapjaw ants and trapjaw spiders, which can do it in one millisecond. Now, mantis shrimps are rare on UK shores, so you could argue the phantom midge is the predator in the UK with the fastest strike. Not bad for a floating maggot. They are able to live their pelagic life thanks to those paired air-filled sacs that they use to regulate their buoyancy. These fulfil a similar function to submarines' ballast tanks or the swim bladders in fish, but unlike them, they are unable to pump gas into them, as they lack the circulation system found in fish and other vertebrates to carry the gas. 
So until recently, it was a bit of a mystery how they controlled the size of these buoyancy sacks to maintain their neutral buoyancy and float in the water or move up and down. But scientists discovered that the sacks were made of resilin, an elastic rubber-like protein which contracts when exposed to low pH or acidic conditions and expands in high pH or alkaline conditions. They have been described as mechanochemical engines as they use chemicals to change the pH and cause the sacs to contract or expand, decreasing or increasing their buoyancy to adjust their position in the water column without the need to pump gas in and out of them. The gas simply diffuses in when they expand or diffuses out when they contract. As far as we know, this is completely unique in the animal kingdom. As we've mentioned, those living in lakes and ponds that have fish will hide in bottom sediment. Some species will go down to a depth of 70 metres to avoid these fish. One study showed that Blavicans was the only species that occurred below 5 metres, suggesting that the other species could not withstand the high hydrostatic pressure at these depths, probably due to the morphology of their buoyancy gas sacs. When they have to move down to the bottom in the daytime, they enter into the sediment by first thrusting in their posterior end, then rapidly wiggle their way in, or to put it more scientifically, through a succession of rapid lateral movements. Each one of these lateral movements only lasts half a second, and it only takes six of these movements for the larvae to completely disappear beneath the sediment surface. This information is from an excellent paper that uses infrared and x-rays to observe the larvae in captivity while under the sediment surface. They sit here under the sediment, in a vertically stretched out S shape with the head nearest the surface. While under the sediment, they are actually in an anoxic layer with no oxygen, which in deep lakes will already be in a zone of lower oxygen, so the larvae cannot respire in a typical fashion. So instead they rely on anoxic respiration through the daytime while buried. The low oxygen water zone is off-putting to fish as well, so this gives them further protection from these predators. Another advantage of burying themselves in this bottom sediment is they are often cooler which slows down their metabolism and saves them energy, which along with the buoyancy sac allowing them to move up and down in the water column with minimal energy expenditure, means that such a small creature can move vertically up and down 70 metres every day. Their way of life is obviously successful. Not only are they super numerous in some bodies of water in the modern day, their fossils go back to the Jurassic, with fossils of larvae that look very similar to modern day larvae found within rocks from Russia. I did look into what was going on with their eyes, and I found a discussion on the Dipterist forum. It turns out that fly larvae, or maggots, do not have complex compound eyes, except phantom midge larvae do. I've seen these Dipterists speculating that perhaps it is the eye that has grown ready to be used as an adult, and perhaps this happens in the larvae of other fly species, but the head is not transparent so we can't see it. It's just speculation, but I thought I'd mention it anyway. And as far as I can see, scientists don't know if the larvae use their eyes, there's been some sort of suggestion they might. Maybe they see light and dark only, and perhaps it aids them finding the prey or detecting predators too. But they do hunt at night, so they obviously don't need to use them to catch prey. There's some interesting research there. Any entomologists listening want to find that one out? And I'll finish by mentioning the closely related two species of Mochonolix. I'm pretty sure I pronounced that wrong. These guys are similar in many ways, except they have a much larger prothorax, which contains an air bladder and they have a breathing tube at their posterior end, which allows them to breathe air at the surface, although apparently they don't use it too often. They tend to occur in small and temporary ponds, as well as tree holes full of water too. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Why not go and have a look for some of these wonderful creatures? Do let me know if you find any. You can stick a poster on social media and tag us. The details are coming up. But for now, that's it from me, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. 
You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UK Wildlife Pod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips and music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.